Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. This week, the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is going primetime, which could be a big deal if people watch television anymore. In fact, social media is probably going to play a more important role than ever. But it seems Americans, Republicans in particular, have lost interest or want to move on from investigating the January 6th attack. I wanted to unpack what to look for in the hearings that will be broadcast in the days ahead, how the committee can get Americans to care and what the outcomes may hold for former President Trump and our politics overall. So I invited my guest today, David Axelrod is former chief strategist and advisor to President Obama. Sarah Longwell is a Republican political strategist and publisher of the conservative opinion site, The Bulwark. And Preet Bharara is former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. David, Sarah, and Preet, welcome to Sway. Good to be here. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me. All right. So I have quotes that pop up on my phone all the time. And this is primetime now. And I, the quote I got was from Flannery O'Connor, who said something like, the truth does not change our ability to stomach it. It seems like the truth has lost its way here in many, many ways. So I'm going to start with you, David. Why is the work of the January 6th committee going primetime and why now? Democrats have set up watch parties and brought on former president of ABC News to run the coverage. Is it, is it a publicity stunt for the midterms, or what? why do you think it's important for it to be primetime? First of all, I'm still trying to get my arms around the fact that Flannery O'Connor is texting you, but uh, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get past that. I think that they have conducted what appears to be a very, very thorough, in-depth investigation, and that's taken time. The problem they have is that a lot of what they've probed has been leaked along the way. And, you know, this is like a game of Wordle and everybody knows the answer is Trump. And so that's not a big surprise. So the question is, what can they present that is new? You know, and as you point out, why should people care? Is it backward looking at a time when they're being faced with high gas prices and all the other things that are buffeting people today? This is what the Republicans are going to work. And by the way, I mean, they, they brought in a the former head of ABC News, I guess, to uh, produce this. They're doing it prime time. We're going to see like eight TV shows. Um, the question is, does all of that undermine uh, them in the sense that people feel like they're being, you know, handed a package, a, a TV show rather than an investigation? All of that doesn't obviate the fact that this is hugely important. This was a really seminal and horrifying event in our history, and it's not over. And I think that's a point they have to stress. It's not over. So spinning it forward. Yes. So Sarah, talking about spectacle rather than substance, how important is that? There have been previous hearings. We've all, not just the Supreme Court hearings, but the Watergate hearings, um, the the Iran-Contra hearings, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, totally different media environment. Uh, It's very difficult to hold people's attention, but I want to pick up where David left off, which is that the case that they need to make is that the threat is ongoing. I mean, one of the things I'm hoping to hear is the connection between these Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, all the people that were there, and whether it's it's 
folks in Congress who were working with them. I mean, the things that Liz Cheney has kind of been dropping in her interviews is that this was a highly coordinated uh, event, that they're, they're, they're using words like conspiracy. And in fact, some of the people who have been indicted, who attacked the Capitol, are being indicted under conspiracy. So I think that 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 idea that the threat is ongoing, because I, I do these focus groups all the time, and I always ask about January 6th. And and even with Republican voters who are willing to say, the ones who don't say, well, it was a false flag operation by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, the ones that and say, look, FBI. it was a really, yeah, an FBI and why, why, Nancy Pelosi and what were the cops doing? But the the ones who are saying, look, that was a really terrible thing that happened, um, you know, part of it is trying to figure out uh, how do you get those people to understand that Donald Trump was at the center of this because that's what they don't think. They don't think that it was Trump's fault. Like, that's the thing that they think is a bridge too far because they're primed to believe that it's the media is always trying to get Trump. And so they they don't think it's his fault. So making it his fault, putting him at the center of it, asking what he was doing for those 187 minutes where he sat there and did nothing and let the attack play out, the threats against Mike Pence. Trump is very likely going to be uh, one of the candidates for president in the 2024 GOP field. And so, you know, telling that story, the threats ongoing, the relationship between uh, the Republicans and these extremists, these conspiracy theories, all of that is important to tell. So, Preet, you've argued cases before as a U.S. attorney. How important is the spectacle of it? I've heard 187 minutes, the idea that Trump's got to be the star of this thing. And at the same time, that's problematic, correct? Is it good or bad that it's being produced like a TV special? Is that what these cases, these legal cases are now? Well, I think it depends on how it's done. It depends on the execution. You know, I've had judges say uh, about presentations made in federal court, particularly the summation, when you bring it all together, connect all the dots, present all the evidence to the jury that's been coming in in bits and pieces over the course of weeks or months, that sometimes we were a little clunky. And I'd like to see a little bit more AV. Um, there's a great judge in the Southern District of New York who would make a point of telling prosecutors and defense lawyers after the case was over, you could have done a better job with visuals and summary charts and those kinds of things. So, you know, even as a part of the substance, you want to be compelling and you want to be crisp and you want to be forceful. But on the other hand, as has been pointed out, if it's overly slick, overly produced, that's a problem. So you got to find a balance in between those two things. I want to also just elaborate on what David said, which is exactly correct. Unlike a criminal case that's being brought, even if a lot of the material and the allegations have leaked out uh, through various sources, on the day of the indictment, it's still a big deal because it doesn't matter because there's going to be a day in court for the defendant or the defendants going forward. And the fact that some of it leaked out and the fact that you know the public may yawn a little bit doesn't matter. But this is not a criminal case. This is an opportunity both for kind of an opening statement and a closing argument, but nothing follows from this. There's going to be no jury sitting in judgment. There's going to be no judge sitting in judgment. And so it's really important for momentum, for public understanding, and for, for public action for there to be new stuff. And Jamie Raskin has said, you know, pretty starkly, this is going to blow the roof off the house. You know, he's a really, really smart guy. And some stuff has leaked out, as David said, but to the extent there is new stuff, I think that'll be a big deal uh, and won't be yawned away. If it's all stuff that we already know, whether you like it or not, I don't think it's going to move many more people. Can I just say one thing about uh, Jamie Raskin's comment? I have maximum high regard for Jamie, but I think when you set expectations so high, you run the risk of people saying that, you know, you rolled out a cannon and a flag came out that said pop. So if you say you're going to blow the, the roof off the house, you'd better be uh, prepared to deliver the goods. And I, I would rather under promise and over deliver than over promise and under deliver. 
Mm-hmm. So, Sarah, one of the things that Fox is not broadcasting these on Fox News, but in a much lower viewership world of Fox Business, which I think has 15 or so people watching it. Um, what do you think of this decision? Because one of the things they've got to do is create attention. It, it, people are used to that idea of something like that. If they're trying to convince, which is what you were talking about, the people that are going to be watching on the MSNBCs or CNNs of the world don't need a lot of convincing, or maybe they do, but the Fox people definitely do. Yeah, I mean, look, from Fox's perspective, uh, some of the things that have come out, you know, Mark Meadows' text messaging inbox is just a crazy place to live. Uh, and one <laughs> of the things that you see is um, is is people like uh, the primetime lineup of Fox, Laura Ingram texting Mark Meadows, call this thing off. You see um, Sean Hannity texting. And so, you know, when you as a network we're both um, egging this thing on when your primetime lineup is part of the evidence that is going to be submitted as people, you know, who were saying that and Laura Ingram's text is so um, illustrative of the relationship with Fox because she's saying, call it off. It's making all of us look bad, right? They're on the team. They're all part of this together. And also there is a contrast between what they were texting in the moment and what they were saying on air. And so you can understand why uh, they then don't want to cover the coup that uh, they have their own role uh, to play in it. But in terms of convincing their viewership, I mean, or their viewership even just seeing it, you know, as you know, I famously have a mother who watches Fox News, and I had to explain three or four stories to her that she wasn't aware of at all whatsoever. Yeah, well, I got I got the part of the the, the news here, though, is that uh, it's not just the folks who watch Fox. Uh, you would be shocked at the focus groups. I'm always I, I'm not shocked anymore, I guess, because uh, I'm aware that this happens. But there is a thing that we are obsessed by on Twitter and in D.C. and we're all talking about it and it's explosive. And I'll do a focus group that night with swing voters or Democrats, doesn't matter the group. And I'll bring it up and everyone will just look at me blankly because it is not the world that they live in. And so I actually think that the there's an opportunity, there's always an opportunity to tell this story in a different way. People are always asking me, is this going to impact the midterms? Uh, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. But I do think that this can be a bit of a straw that stirs the drink when it comes to prosecuting a case against Republicans against how extreme they've gotten. One thing to remember is the candidates who are running right now in 2022 are running on the same lie that drove the attack that day. And you don't know what's going to come up in evidence. We don't know the things that are going to come out. Doug Mastriano, who's the current governor's candidate in Pennsylvania, was there. There were many people in Congress who were there. So what what could we learn that actually does end up helping prosecute a case against the Republicans for how extreme the party has gotten, how tied they are to these extremist groups. Like that's a that's a story that can make a difference. David, people say that a lot, but nobody seems to care. You know what I mean? It, which is interesting. I, again, I was at a wedding, a family wedding, and one of my cousins was like, yeah, I can't stand Trump, but you know, he wasn't really that dangerous, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and so it, I don't think it matters. You know, doesn't like him, thinks he's terrible, still voting Republican. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think this these hearings may impact on some people at the margins on that who are still open to learn stuff about what his role was. Clearly, he's going to be implicated in the plotting here. Uh, but, you know, uh, in terms of the, the midterm elections uh, that Sarah brought up, uh, you know, what the Republicans are going to try and do is say, this is what they're doing with their time. They're not focusing on your problems. What Democrats probably need to do is say, these guys are so wound up in their crazy right-wing extreme 
things that they're not focused on the things that you care about. So, but I, I do think the positioning of these hearings is so important. Remember, there was supposed, you know, every uh, Democrats proposed, Pelosi proposed a 9-11 style commission. Republicans rejected that because they know the narrative is not good for them and it's not good for Trump. And so they're going to do everything they can to position this as a partisan witch hunt rather than as a search for truth. And that's a, a part of what the committee is pushing against and why People should not talk about it. Democrats involved in the committee certainly should not be talking about the midterm election. Should midterm elections. Uh, okay. How important a role will social media play here from your perspective? You're all thinking about it all the time. I don't know, Sarah, in your focus groups, what do you see the fallout being? Because that's where a lot of people, especially young people, get their information. Yeah, I mean, and it is, and it's where, I mean, not just young people, I, the, the number of people who get their information, like when I, we always ask about where do you get your news and the, especially for like the 50 something set, it's mostly Facebook slash some local news. And so I do think there's a reason that everybody's always like trying to get one of these iconic 30 second things to go viral. Um, and I do hope actually that the committee and Liz Cheney is thinking about moments for her that can be uh, easily digestible to prosecute the case. Because while as depressing as it is that that's what people's attention spans are like, we know it's a reality of social media. And like getting things to go viral on Facebook is one of the best ways to get it to break through. Like Fox News isn't going to carry it. But if it's all over Facebook because people are sharing something because it really is a damning moment, that's how you get something to break through to those voters. What about you, David? Do you think that's critically important? It ha no, I, I think this is an essential, this has to be a, an essential part of their strategy because at best 20 million people will be watching. Uh, there are a lot of people who won't be watching and they'll be getting these, uh, their accounts of this in, in these uh, viral tidbits. Uh, and you, you mentioned, Kara, younger people uh, who, you know, have become somewhat disengaged uh recently in the in the political process. Um, and so they're going to get a lot of accounts of what happened at these hearings that way. Uh, it has to be an essential part of their strategy. It's the world in which we live. And Preet? Look, I, I think going back to how we started and talking about the slickness of the production, you need a moment. You need a, a number of moments because that's how most people are going to learn about the hearings and, and form an opinion about the hearings and about the product of the hearings. But if it's too slick and too forced and not genuine, if it looks like a manufactured, intentional, uh, planned viral moment, then that falls flat and it doesn't work. So as with all of these things that the four of us are talking about and predicting, the execution matters. And so far, I think there's good reason to believe that the execution will be done well, but you know, we'll have to wait and see. One of the things, uh, I, I hate to bring this up, but it's kind of interesting. The world couldn't turn away from the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Is there something the January 6th committee could learn from that? Uh, Heard trials in terms of garnering attention. Obviously, Johnny Depp side adeptly used social media and created this uh, victimization around him that hadn't existed in other cases. Is there anything to do that to get people to pay attention? Yeah, but I, I, look, I think the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial was compelling to a lot of people in part because they're huge celebrities and it's a, you know, a post-marital fight and that draws attention. But the celebrity thing is not nothing. I mean, for example, just yesterday, a fairly unknown gentleman by the name of Matthew McConaughey, 
who hails from Uvalde, Texas, gave an impassioned speech about sensible gun control, and the world went bananas. Um, and he's not saying anything particularly different from a member of Congress or from the current sitting president of the United States or other activists who care about this. So it, it remains true that the power of celebrity is a big deal. I don't know how you import any of that into a House hearing. And given the seriousness of the House hearing, I think you want to kind of stay away from celebrity. But you want to be crisp and compelling to the extent you can. Look, one thing that could blow the, the roof off the House is if the committee has all of Flannery O'Connor's texts, I, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, be clear, by the way, Trump is kind of deaf here, is one of the huge stand culture uh, that loves him. And who, and who is Amber Heard? Uh, I don't know. Well, no, but listen, there is a celebrity angle here. They do have video of uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner on video talking about what happened that day. Apparently, it was pretty detailed and enlightening. Uh, that is a celebrity element of these hearings. And I think people will be interested to hear what they say uh, the president did and didn't do during those uh, 187 minutes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the case that information comes out in bits and pieces and some people, like the people on this uh, panel right now, follow it every day. Yeah, like a soap opera. And, you know, we write about it, we talk about it, we speak about it on television and on podcasts. Most people aren't following it that closely. You know, they hear a bit of information. They Something about Steve Bannon, was he indicted? Who's this other guy, Mark Meadows? Over the course of weeks and months and months. And that happens in real trials, too, and you kind of lose the thread. And then sometimes, at the end of the case, or at the end of a process like we're seeing here, Skilled people, whether it's House managers in an impeachment trial or committee members here or prosecutors in a case, they tie it up together in a way that nobody really saw. You know, that happened at the end of the, the trial against Derek Chauvin. You know, people were following it, and it was a pretty easy thing to understand. But I remember watching the summations and thinking, wow, you know, they're going through the tape of the knee on the back of the neck of George Floyd. Even though I had been following it and paying attention all along, Something about the way it is all put together at the end, if you're watching, and if you have an open mind and you pay attention, that's the problem. Like, you know, the Fox viewers are not going to be seeing it. It can be very revelatory. Even if there's not something hugely new, it all of a sudden dawns on you, wow, this was a terrible thing. And all those things along the way that I hadn't put together because I have a life to live and, um, you know, I got to figure out how to put gas in my car. Wow, that is a portrait that really stuns me and makes me worry about the country. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Adam Schiff, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with David Axelrod, Sarah Longwell, and Preet Bharara after the break. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com slash NYT. That's netsuite.com slash NYT. 
I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So Sarah, what's the GOP counterattack going to look and sound like? Yeah, so I've, I've, we have seen this. I, I mean, I worked both impeachments uh, in my own way and watched how the Republicans were very effective at creating sort of almost a victim sense around Trump. Like, this is just the media going after him again. And, oh, what a circus. And, you know, we already see the counter-programming. Like, you can see if you line all the Twitters up, you know, next to each other, how there's like a very coordinated line. Um that you're seeing out of Republicans. Uh, but here's the thing. The, this hearing has one thing that neither of the impeachments did, and that is Liz Cheney. And Liz Cheney, uh, she has been a marvel. And when Preet talks about being crisp um, and effective, that is something that she has been, she has been relentless. And there is a way that having her prosecute the case, which I think is going to happen. I think one of the things you're going to see out of this hearing is Liz Cheney, real front and center, being the person prosecuting this. And that is going to blunt some of this idea that it is just a left wing uh, attack, you know, going after Trump again, the media, because Liz Cheney is going to be all over this. And I'm sure Adam Kinzinger will be, too. But she in particular, I think is going to bring the high drama. I think she's going to be the one laying out the case. And that is going to force Republicans to deal with it in a way that that is different, especially kind of the national review crowd. Um, it's going to force them to deal with it in a way that is different than they did the last two impeachments when they could just say witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. So, David, is that important? Someone like Liz Cheney, they have tried to impugn her a lot and they do it all the time. She's quite feisty, pushing back, obviously. Um, is that is that important uh, to have the Republican? Because one of the things was they thought the committee made missteps by alienating Republicans. Is she enough? They kicked off two conservative members, Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. Speaker Pelosi did that in, early on. Is that is she an important figure in this? Oh, I, I, without question. And we should point out she's doing it at a, pers a great personal risk. Her, her, her fate is probably sealed in this primary in August. Uh, when she's up for re-election. Uh, but this is not going to help her cause there. Uh, but she is, as Sarah describes her, very effective. And I think to that sort of swing, kind of suburban, Republican-leaning independent, uh, I think she is a meaningful figure. And she will speak, in, because the Republicans will try and position her as someone who just hates Trump. I think she's going to make clear what her conservative and Republican bona fides are uh, and and uh, that this is, in her mind, not a partisan exercise. And I think she will be, to those who hear and who listen to these hearings, um, and there may be more of these suburban swing voters than, than other cohorts, I think that she can have uh, some impact. I think also, Carol, what's going to be important is um, 
how this gets covered. Uh, you know, most people get their news through local newscasts, some through, you know, uh, national newscasts. How, how is this being packaged every day? Because news organizations will cover these hearings. So what is the what are their takeaways and how does that land with uh, people who are open to being swayed? Sweet. Sweet. I'm doing that. That's product placement. Thing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I appreciate it. No need. No need. <laughs> um, so when, when you're doing that pre, when you're thinking about there is there is a, a you know well there's a lot of hand waving. There's substance to these hearings. Who will be speaking or testifying that you're looking for? What are the key moments that we should be looking out for? Because it is a trial. It's really another trial of Donald Trump in many ways. Yeah. So I don't know who they're going to get to testify live. Remember, there are all these people who opposed the subpoenas, but a far, far greater number who obliged and who went through, yes. including, and maybe I'm biased in this regard for a parochial reason, but you had top officials at the Justice Department who, you know, acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general, who were in the midst of craziness with respect to the big lie. And remember, the big lie is the predicate to the insurrection on January 6th. And I think it all is part of the same story. And I, I would think it would be compelling, maybe it's just me, to hear, you know, handpicked Justice Department officials, the ones who were there after Bill Barr left, who were in the middle of trying to prevent another Justice Department official, Jeffrey Clark, from basically trying to overturn the election in Georgia and in other places. And these are people who were you know, picked by Donald Trump, uh, who persisted in office under Donald Trump, were promoted by Donald Trump, and you know, helped him do a lot of stuff that I don't like. But at the end of the day, were mortified and horrified by the kinds of ways that people around Trump, including his lawyers and Jeffrey Clark, as I mentioned, were trying to overturn the election, you know, they're not Democratic loyalists. These are people who are Republicans and who did a lot in favor of the Trump agenda. But at the end of the day, it was too much. And so the more you can hear from people, this is sort of along the lines of Liz Cheney, you know, a rock-ribbed conservative. And the more you hear from people who were in Trump's camp, who were just like, it's too much. You know, believe me, I believe in all these policies. I believe I believed in Donald Trump. I agreed to work for Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, our democracy was more important. And the message of people who are on the other side of the aisle from Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff and others who can say, I don't agree with these people. Liz Cheney doesn't agree with them on almost anything, including guns. But on this issue, we should be united as Americans. Maybe some of that will break through. It has not testifying become a Trump loyalty test. And is that problematic for this committee? Yeah, but here's what I'm interested in. So there was a period when they started to circle the wagons, but there was a period before they circled the wagons when they have people testifying. Like the reason they have all those Mark Meadows text is he was cooperating for a period of time. And so I'm very interested in kind of the early part of what they have before everybody circled the wagons. That's one thing. The other thing is, is, you know, I think somebody like Brad Raffensperger, you know, he won his primary and everybody counted him out, but Donald Trump called him up and tried to tell him to find 11,000 votes. And I think we heard the tape, but now it's been, what, uh, 19 months since we heard that? It's been a long time. And so I think revisiting some of that, having people like Brad Raffensperger tell in real time, the president of the United States was pressuring me to overturn an election to find votes that weren't there. You wrap that into a story. That's also something that I'm, I think is going to be compelling. Can I add a name, Kara? Yeah, please. I don't know if he'll testify in person. Mark Short, the chief of staff to Mike Pence, seems to me like a critical figure here. He was an eyewitness to all of the efforts to pressure Pence. Uh, he was with Pence 
on January 6th when all of these events unfolded on Capitol Hill. He is uh, an impeccable Republican. There's no doubt about that. And he is a he can be a very compelling witness if he testifies live. So I would look for that because he can fill in a lot of blanks here. And because the recent stories coming out about the safety, he reported yes. about the safety of the vice president. Um, so Mark Short, anybody else, David? Um, well, I, I said earlier, I'm e- eager to hear what the uh, the kids had to say about what the uh, what uh, the old man was doing or not doing during that period. I also think I want to go back to the thing that Sarah said uh, and that I uh, said at the beginning, which is the close coordination with these right-wing groups. We all remember Donald Trump saying, stand down and stand by uh, yeah. to the Proud Boys. Uh, now we know how integrally, uh, through indictment, we know how integrally the uh, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers were in this plot. So, you know, witnesses who can testify, I guess the first witness we're going to see is a documentarian who is traveling with the Proud Boys and has a lot of insights into what was going on inside. But that's important because they're still out there. Right. And um, Raffensperger is important because they're still trying to, that, you know, Trump is still trying to influence who counts the votes. I mean, there are a lot of elements here that push this story forward. So uh, I'm interested in those as well. But Preet, when you're thinking about that, he did say it out loud, stand back and stand by or whatever. Um, it reminded me of, you know, if I were the killer OJ thing, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> Is yeah. it, it? It did. I was like, wow, that's really saying the quiet part out loud. Is that an important thing to focus on Donald Trump and, and make him the center of this? He loves being the center. He's a malignant narcissist. It was clear to many people. Yeah, look, he's the story, right? He was the most important person, most important and powerful person in the country. He was in the greatest position to prevent this from happening in the first place. He was in the prime position of any human being in the country to put a halt to it early on. And part of what I've been saying throughout the, the show about connecting the dots and telling the story is there's lots of bits of evidence about Trump that day. You know, we hear one day Ivanka Trump tried to get him to call it off. We hear another day that other folks were calling him. We, we have learned that Kevin McCarthy, you know, has lied about telling the truth in the moment <laughs> on January 6th. But those things come out on different days. You can imagine, you know, part of the presentation being, I love the word crisp, a crisp presentation of all the reasons why Donald Trump should be blamed and is blameworthy for what happened on that day and, the, and is responsible for the deaths that day by looking at all of it and in one, you know, shot, putting it together in a compelling way over, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. And if people are watching and paying attention and if it's done right, I think it can be very compelling. And look, nothing that the committee does is directly going to be responsible for the Department of Justice taking any particular action, but they're going to be watching and they're going to be learning at the same time. So, Sarah, has the committee made missteps that have alienated Republicans in this, like Pelosi's decision to kick off Jordan Banks, which I mentioned? What should they have done differently? Oh, I don't think so. I actually think all that is fine. I think they've put Liz front and center. I think that was the right thing to do. Um, I think not having Jim Jordan on the committee was also the right thing to do. I don't think that would have done anybody any favors for finding the truth and not making it a circus was was a good step. I actually think that the things that I've seen that have worried me is when I see reports come out on things like the committee is split about whether or not to call for like abolishing the electoral college or like there's like I was just like, what, what, why would we even be talking about that? 
I guess my frustration has really been both in the way that the media has been sort of only the, the frame that the only frame they seem to be able to muster is this one about the midterms and like, will it impact the midterms as opposed to laying a historical, you know, predicate for like the truth of that day, like finding the truth is the main thing. Um, I think that this idea that you would come out of it with a left wing policy prescriptions doesn't make right. any sense to me. And they should not do that, even though it is a political process. It's a political process. But here's the thing that I want to see is that that remember the day, remember the day of January 6th. I do. If you are someone like me who was a, a Republican who was constantly talking about why Trump was horrible for the country, horrible for democracy, you were watching it thinking, yeah, this was the thing that we said was going to happen. This is why Donald Trump is so dangerous. And there was this moment, like 48 hours, like a short window where you felt like everyone sudden, who had been living on a different planet suddenly saw things the same way you did, how dangerous he was, how much he had spun up his reporters, how you couldn't just brush off the lie. Look what was resulting from all of this mm -hmm. lying. That feeling has dissipated. That feeling has dissipated, right? It's gone. And so what I want out of this committee is to remind Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and all of the Republicans who have been blocking and tackling for Donald Trump every day since, I want them to feel the deep, deep shame of that day. I want them to be forced to confront the thing that that just flirting with this lie for the last two years now, what it is doing to our politics, what it is doing to people, and the fact that the election was overturned. It was, it was they were attempting mm -hmm. a coup. They were attempting to overturn an election. I want that to be driven home. And that in itself is good. That is, you know, I don't, forget the midterms. Right? That is worth it. Right. But what is shame, both Preet and David? Is that possible? I don't think it is. Look, um, I think the first instinct of most of these politicians is going to be for survival and accumulation of power. And uh, in the background is Trump watching what they're all doing. And, you know, so I think that they're going to they're going to look for ways to try and navigate uh, around this. Um, but, you know, there are actually there are some reforms that may seem minor, but actually could happen as a result of these hearings, like finally reforming this Electoral Count Act of 1887, which made it easier for these guys to kind of plot to try and send alternative electoral electors and so on. Um, and I think that that uh, could happen. And I do think, you know, to Sarah's point, I, I do think that it will embed in those who are who are open to hearing the story uh, it will embed in their minds a sense of horror, even if it doesn't embed in the Republicans who support Trump a sense of shame. Uh, and that's important. OK. All right. So pre shame. <laughs> you and I believe that the shameless do not care about shame, I think. I think some do. Um, but but I mean, I don't think Kevin McCarthy does anymore. Right. Um, obviously, some some do, some don't. And just the, other, the last point I'd like to make is people think about inflection points in the future. And as Sarah was pointing out, reporters keep wanting to figure out what, what impact will this have on 2022? And as Sarah also very correctly points out, this is also about history and getting the facts out for posterity years and years down the line. That's very important. But there's something in between, which we've touched upon, but that's 2024. And my view is that the greatest threat to the Republic is not that the House will revert to the Republicans in 2022, but that Donald Trump will run again and win in 2024. And I do think that these hearings can have some effect in a two-year cycle, laying the groundwork that allows future politicians, either in primaries against Trump or in a general election or just the press overall, 
if you can make a devastating, devastating, incontrovertible case, not criminal one, but an incontrovertible case that Donald Trump is blameworthy in the deaths of people and in the insurrection on January 6th, hopefully that has some material effect on his chances in 2024. And if that is true, it will have all been very, very worth it. Yeah. And it could cause some Republican leaders to uh, reweigh what the cost of Trump is and, you know, and decide that, may, you know what, he's just too much trouble, too yeah, much trouble. Which they are doing. So two more questions. Preet, is the January 6th commission going to refer Trump for criminal charges? And if so, what impact could that have? It's actually, it actually is of no consequence at all. Unlike the thing that sometimes we talk about, which is the, the very concrete process for referring a witness like Steve Bannon or Peter Navarro to the Department of Justice for contempt of Congress. With respect to any other thing, whether it's insurrection or obstruction or fraud or conspiracy to, to, to do anything bad that's a violation of the criminal code, the Department of Justice does not need any kind of referral from the committee. There's a division of thinking. On the one hand, people think, well, if they put together compelling evidence that would prove the elements of a crime, they should write that up and they should send it to the Department of Justice and say, we urge you to investigate these particular crimes and here's the evidence we've amassed and we're sharing it with you. Uh, on the other hand, people say, well, the department can do that on its own. <laughs> this is what they do for a living. Yeah. There are hundreds of people, thousands of people there. And if the committee does it, it makes it look more political. I don't think it matters one way or another. The department will act independently. Some people might think that to get a referral from an, an overwhelmingly democratic committee makes a decision to investigate or prosecute more political. Mm -hmm. I don't think it much matters. So will there be criminal charges, do you think? I mean, looking at it, or would you be like, oh, uh, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't, I'm not making that prediction today. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So I'm going to make you all make a prediction to finish. What is the outcome? Who, who do you think will win in these hearings? Sarah, you start. Uh, who will win or lose? Um, look, I, I think the American people win. I think we all <laughs> win when we learn the truth, but, but I, I look, I hope that, I hope that, Donald Trump loses. I hope that um, there. I hope that Mark Meadows loses. I hope that it exposes a lot of the people. I hope Rudy Giuliani loses, and um, that it exposes all of these frauds, Mike Flynn, all of these crazy people who were who are around. I hope that the the main thing that I hope is exposed and ultimately loses is a lot of the schemes that were being built up around um, undermining democracy, right? So so sending alternate slates of electors, all of the ideas that were being put forward, legal and extra legal, to figure out how to uh, not have a peaceful transfer of power and how to overturn an election. And I hope that gets exposed so that as opposed to it being a dry run, it is actually something that now cannot be attempted again because we're all on to it. Mm -hmm. All right, David? Well, first of all, I, I was wondering whether Sarah was going to go to the old standby. Well, I hope the American people will win, uh, which is something that we would coach all our clients in the day to uh, to say as, as a way to navigate a question like that. But look, I, I mean, I, I think that if the story is told factually and impactfully, uh, obviously Trump is going to be a loser. It may rally his base. It may there may be some victimhood around it. Some Republicans may try that, but the story is pretty damning. And I think the connections are going to be very made very clear here that this wasn't just sort of a spontaneous combustion on January sixth, <laughs> but meaning it just happened. Yeah. So uh, I, I think he will uh, bear some 
scars from this. Um, the only thing that I, uh, you know, I would caution Democrats about is uh, if they start hitting the fundraising buttons and uh, talking about this in political terms from the beginning, instead of historic terms uh, like the, uh, the the way in which Sarah's talked about it here, I think there's some potential backlash to that. They they will aid and abet what will be the Republican argument, which is this is just a political exercise. They should avoid that. This is such a serious issue in the history of our democracy, and it should be treated with the weight it deserves. Uh, Preet, what do you think? I mean, one of this, one of the things Trump's always says, you could walk down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and get away with it. This feels like that in a lot of ways. Yeah, so I'm going to associate myself with the admonition of David Axelrod and say the American people will win. Um, <laughs> but, but the I, I learned, I, I've learned my lesson. Two of three, think you, that you've David. hung around politics. Terrible, you know? cynical yeah, yeah. political operative. But, but again, I'm, I'm going to repeat what I said before. I think that 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 a byproduct of the American people winning necessarily means that Donald Trump loses. And I think Sarah said something very, very good. And you know, at, so at the top level, you hope Donald Trump loses, and it has an impact on his future electability. And his fellow Republicans think this man is too dangerous because if he gets away with it and this thing lands with a thud, look at what he's going to do when he takes power in 2024. He's not going to have some of these people who are unwilling to go along. It's all going to be people who are willing to go along. So that's at the top. But as Sarah points out, there are unknown and unnamed and somewhat anonymous people whose, whose names are not on our lips who are running for office in various states uh, for positions that, that, oversee elections in those states because that's where the ground war is going to be in 2024. And to the extent some of those people you know, see that they can be exposed and the people who are in opposition to them can take lessons from uh, these hearings and what comes out at these hearings, that's a win for the American people too. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, David, Sarah, Preet. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blakeney Schick, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orme. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naeem Araza, and the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with your favorite Flannery O'Connor quote, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.